if you are good to other people, you are a bad person. Hey, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. My name's Elliot. And I'm Audrey. And this is the podcast where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get to know who they really were. Right. The good, the bad, mostly the ugly. Mostly the ugly. Yes. Speaking of the good and the bad and the ugly. Oh, yeah. I love to speak of those three things. How's life? A combination of those three things. Oh, man. Pretty consistently. Is it? It's just it's just too far. Somebody needs to get on the phone with the managers of this simulation and tell them they have jumped the shark. This is too much. Doing too much. Too much. Yeah, yeah. Real mixed bag. Real mixed bag. Speaking of mixed bags. Do you have a bag you want mixed? <laughs> we got um we got a little mixed bag of reviews of the podcast this week. Oh yes, 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 we did. We did. We got a couple five star reviews and our very first one star review. Yeah. <laughs> woo, woo. Shout out. Shout out. Let's start with the good. What are the good yes. good reviews? So username Greasy Satchel oh. left us a really lovely review. And I was able to actually find another podcast that Greasy Satchel himself produces. Oh, wow. And it's really good. So it's called An Absolute Nobody. And it's a podcast where he tells a story of someone who was an absolute nobody, but who does something that gets them put into the spotlight. Well, that's like the exact opposite of our podcast. It's like the exact opposite. Yeah. Well, how complimentary. Look at this. Last episode, we had enemies. Now we have podcast friends. Thanks, Greasy Satchel. Thank you, Greasy Satchel. Five stars. Yes. But speaking of enemies. I love them. Yeah. Can't so, get enough. Um, <laughs> and since this... this person has stopped listening to our podcast. Okay, yes. So, so we, this one star review came from uh, user not shit to a boss. Not shit number two. Number two. A boss. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, honestly, I felt like this deserved reading. Usually, you're just like, let the people leave. Yes, I get it. Yeah. But, um, okay. <laughs> the title of this review is Lies. Lies. That's all we that's all we do. <clears throat> I was liking it right up to the Ronald Reagan episode. Dot 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 when they claimed he stopped being a Democrat because of civil rights was only partly true and they know it. Exclamation point exclamation point. He did leave Democrats due to civil rights. Dot dot dot. He left them all caps because he supported it unlike every Democrat cause not a single Democrat voted in favor of civil rights exclamation point exclamation point not a single one dot 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 you misspoke you said civil rights not a single Democrat supported civvy rights civvy rights I'm sorry (laughs) civvy rights dot 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 so back to lowercase how can I believe if anything else on other episodes is true or just a bunch of BS exclamation point that actually is my favorite part of the entire review. As if we have some sort of like proprietary claim to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> How As can if we I didn't know? just research this from the exact place they're leaving <laughs> <You> the review. <laughs> Let's just be clear. Okay, so as this as the Reagan episode starts, this is not a political podcast. This is an right. anti bullshit podcast. Yes. And just like I am sorry. We have done, we have both strived to do both heroes that we like didn't think that much of before Mm -hmm. or didn't know anything about. And also people we actually respected. Yeah. And if just because one of these days somebody that you like ends up on this list and you find out they ended up being a giant hypocrite, don't come crying to us. I mean, here's what I'll tell you. There are folks on our list that we're going to get to that bum me out real hard. Oh, yeah. We are, this is a 
um, equal opportunity uh, podcast. Yeah, because it turns out like the fact of like people who are striving for power and take power and try to claim their spot in history. Yes. Like it is a bipartisan affair, those people being assholes. Yes. Right? Yes. And uh, I was just listening to an NPR story. Um, Robin Young, what is her? It's not Fresh Air with Terry Gross. It's um, whatever Robin Young hosts. And she was speaking to a, I believe it was Robin Young. She was speaking to a psychologist who uh, who teaches classes on the muscle that is empathy and how you can cultivate empathy and grow it, but how there's an inverse relationship between someone's willingness to cultivate empathy and the amount of power they have. Yes. Which is the crux of this podcast. Exactly. Also, I don't know why folks feel the need to defend dead people. Like, (laughs) you don't know Reagan. He probably wouldn't have cared about you. No. Like, pretty explicitly didn't care about a lot of people except himself. And speaking of people who only cared about their self-interest, <laughs> yeah, just segue into today's podcast. Just because, as a love letter to not shit to a boss, we today, mm-hmm. I, I presume we're talking about yet another conservative uh, darling. A conservative darling, but uh, we're talking about Ayn Rand, and she actually was not conservative herself. Oh. Would have actually campaigned actively multiple times against the establishment or institution of conservatism. Okay, well then, let's just backpedal here for yeah. a second. She, Today's was, hero, she was sort of like a, an Rand. institutional anarchist okay. of sorts. Okay. But really, yeah, we'll get into it. Ayn Rand, what do you know? What do I know? Yeah. Okay, so clearly not as much as I thought, because I was going <laughs> to put her down in this uh, conservative camp. But but uh, here here's, I, I do know some things. So I know that there there's a lot of libertarians who claim Ayn Rand as like this hero had a whole like economic but also like philosophical thing that she was pushing uh, and wrote books that weren't just like textbooks about it wrote like fiction I know started as fiction Start, well yeah Atlas Shrugged I know is one of these big ones um, and still like gets a lot of play on the internet uh, in like right leaning circles there's more like it gets fuzzier, but yes, I, it does. That's those are the edges that I'm pretty familiar with. Right. Um, we will talk about all of that. But the more that I sort of did research into Ayn Rand, I I didn't know anything really about her as a person, um, more just about her philosophies and sort of like her impact on the way. Yeah, like Ted, a lot of white Ted, dudes want to talk Ted about. Ted Cruz is yeah. the person I think. Of. Like when I when I think about why has Ayn Rand been like relevant recently, mm-hmm. I, th- I can think like I have distinct memories in the last couple years of Ted Cruz talking about mm-hmm. how much he like loved the her books. She would have punched him in the fucking face. <laughs> well, she we have more in common hated it. than I would have yes. thought. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, she would have hated it. Anyway, let's let's dig into her life. Let's dive in. Born. February 2nd, 1905. But this is where Audrey's Astrology Corner this week gets complicated. Oh. So up until 1918, in Russia, where she was born, they still used old-style calendar, Julian calendar, instead of the Gregorian calendar. Wait, does this affect the great astrology circus? No, Complications. Um, The old style, she would have been, the date would have technically been like January 20th, Um, but I went new style. I just went with what is most widely known, February 2nd. I was hoping we were going to go Audrey's Julian Astrology Hours all Uh, of a sudden. Womp. All I have is the information for February 2nd. Okay. It's brief this week because I didn't want to, uh, 
I don't want to create any sort of conspiracy theory around her relationship to astrology if it was inaccurate. I see. I see. Right. Anyway, so now's the time. As an Aquarian born on February 2nd, this person would have a modern outlook on life. They seem ageless, and their physical attractiveness testifies to their need to present themselves favorably. They are sticklers for honesty. They need to display their unconventional personality and embrace controversial issues. Mm. Controversy suits her. There you go. Born in Russia, like I mentioned, uh, into what was described as a bourgeois family. We can we, we can just say bougie on this podcast. <laughs> we could. <laughs> yeah. We won't, but we could. <laughs> Her best friend growing up was actually the younger sister of Vladimir Nabokov, so the author of Lolita, oh. um, prolific Russian Oh, author. the younger sister. Okay. The younger sister. Got it. Yep. Uh, as a child, she found school boring and started writing very young plays, novels, fairly prolifically, starting in like fifth grade. Can I just say something? Mm-hmm. I feel like enough of the people we've done so far have found school boring as mm-hmm. a child. I'm starting to think that school in the early 1900s slash late 1800s <laughs> was just kind of fucking boring because they did not know what the fuck they were doing. <laughs> right, right. I, yeah. I, I bet like this is actually l- more of a theme for children in general. In general. Okay, but just yes. good to know. But she, unlike, in particular. Yes, unlike a lot of our other uh, heroes, she actually was pretty good at it. She excelled at school. Okay. She, um, she graduates high school. She's one of the first women in Russia to go to college um, in 1917 so she's 12 you might be aware that some shit went down in Russia yeah so I, I do mm-hmm. I was I was all looking into this right a couple episodes ago yep so first the February Revolution and then the October Revolution mm-hmm. respectively revolutions <laughs> yeah because um, the whole first revolution they were like oh we're gonna do this and then mm-hmm. like still kind of the aristocrats kind of held on to power mm-hmm. for a while and then a little bit later the basically the rural population was like, no, fuck this. It's really going down. It's and really just going down. Overthrew everything. Yes. So it's a political revolution, as most are. Um, and it resulted in some turmoil for her family. And this is really where a lot of the roots of her philosophies start. So her family ends up having to flee to the Crimea Peninsula. They lose all their money. They end up fairly destitute. Her father's store is taken over by communists. And at that point, she is a godless child. <laughs> Nothing, no institution makes sense to her anymore. But especially um, not the commies. Because not the commies. they ruined her childhood. Right. So a few years later, she goes to college, gets a degree in history. Where's she going to college? In Russia? Uh, yeah. it's She's one of the first women to attend Petrograd University. Okay. Which was what, she was born in St. Petersburg that was later renamed Petrograd um, which is the university. Got it. But still in Russia and now Soviet Russia. And now she's back. She graduates college in three years, talks to her cousins who live in Chicago, and she's like, hey, can I come to the United States? She secures a visa, goes to Chicago under the sort of like auspices of studying film and screenwriting. She's going to take all this information and go back to Russia. That doesn't happen. She goes to Chicago, sticks around for about six months, and is like, Hollywood is where it's at. Wait, so she is... Uh... At some point, I imagine then, because she came under false pretenses, she's an undocumented immigrant. I didn't do too much research into that. She eventually becomes a citizen only after she marries an American citizen. Interesting. But she definitely 
does not stay in Chicago for whatever purpose for whatever she secured her visa. Yeah. Okay. I'm just I'm just hoping to look for a layer of irony here. Who knows? <laughs> There's many layers of irony. Okay. Yeah, we're laying the foundation of irony. <laughs> okay. Okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> Tell me more. So at this point, it's uh, 1926, 1927. She goes to Hollywood through a series of... Um, just sort of like happenstance events. She meets uh, Cecil DeVille, right? That's mm-hmm. um, Cecil some letter in the middle, DeVille. I didn't actually write that down. but B? Cecil B? I don't know. Yeah, that feels good. A director. A director. She ends up getting a job as an extra and then working in a wardrobe department. She meets a young actor. His name's Frank O'Connor. They get married, and she, you know, all the time, all this time is writing and writing, Continues to sort of work in wardrobe for a while. What what's she writing at this point? Um, at this point, she's writing she's writing plays. Oh, screenplays and plays. Okay. Yes, plays. At that point, she wasn't like getting anything produced. Um, but then, a few years later, so like early nineteen um, thirties, some of her work actually does make it to a stage. Um, so she is able to produce some of her plays. She leaves the wardrobe department and essentially becomes like a playwright. So with the success of these plays, she's able to sort of then start writing more fiction or creative nonfiction. She writes this semi-autobiographical story called We the Living, and it's one of the earliest glimpses into her burgeoning political ideologies. So this story is set in Soviet Russia. It focuses on the struggle between the individual and the state, Britannica.com, where I got a lot of this information, called it, quote, romantic tragedy tragedy in which Soviet totalitarianism epitomized the inherent evils of collectivism, which she understood as the subordination of individual interests to those of the state. So she had some opinions. Yeah. I mean, yes. Soviet bad. (laughs) Those were her opinions. (laughs) Can I summarize that accurately? Um, So that's 1936-ish. She's 31. By the 40s, she's in her 30s. She's written, again, more pieces that she's able to sell and produce. This is when she actively begins to engage in politics. She volunteers for political campaigns. She starts to get introduced to prominent political figures, writers, economists, academics. She is also, at this time, finishing up her first successful novel, The Fountainhead. Okay, so she's in Hollywood, mm-hmm. like in these social circles, and finishing this novel. Yes. Do you know anything about The Fountainhead? Uh, I've heard the name before. I've not read it or anything. Yeah, I have not read it either. Um, Donald Trump, if you believe he reads books. <laughs> um, that my, that laughter is how me definitely believing that very hard, yes. <laughs> um, he cites this. He likes to, in the past, I don't want to say he likes to, in the past has... When somebody asks, have you ever read a book? He would mm-hmm. say The Fountainhead. <laughs> yeah, he, he like sees himself in this book's protagonist. And this book's protagonist is a real estate tycoon who blows up his own apartment complex when it doesn't meet this certain set of standards. He goes on trial for all of this damage she caused and he is essentially acquitted. This is like this is like a Cliff's Notes version of a yeah. Cliff's Notes version of a Cliff's Notes version. Okay, sure. He's essentially acquitted after giving this speech that is an early manifesto of what will be objectivism, which is this political and economic philosophy that Ayn is about to 
birth into the world. If you would have just told me that Donald Trump said his favorite book was about a real estate developer getting away with crimes, I would have believed you. <laughs> there you go. That's the synopsis. Exactly. But the like fact that. that it was it was originally uh, you get away with crimes because you have such a powerful mm-hmm. uh, political philosophy that you can you know, speak about in your defense that the juries just move to acquit you from the realm of laws designed to hold back mere mortals. That that is so much more eloquent than the way that I phrased the summary of the Fountainhead. Look at that. This book is initially rejected by 12 publishers, and it ends up in the hands of a literary agent who loves the protagonist so much he threatens to quit unless his publisher publishes his book. They publish it, and it is almost immediately very successful. Dude was right. Dude was right. People like it. So this book is finally published in 1943. And if you think about what's happening at the time in the United States, not necessarily globally, but in the United States, we're on the tail end of the recession. The WPA has sort of picked up steam in the United States. There's all there are all of these social programs to, to like provide for folks, putting and, people to work, like building yes. massive like dams and big national parks and stuff. But it's a very like you know big government spending program to get people right. working. Right, and the Fountainhead is in direct contrast to that. It speaks about the individual, the individual's need, the individual's like moral authority to put themselves first. It spoke to a number of people, primarily business folks who are coming out of the Great Depression and looking for this like symbol of hope that they too can be the entrepreneur who like makes it big. Nothing like what's going on today. Yeah, exactly. Anywhere. Anyway, it's really successful. She gets famous and makes a ton of money pretty quickly. She sells the rights to make the screenplay on the condition that she writes it herself because other plays that she had written were eventually translated to some screenplays, and she hated all of them and she, because she didn't get to write them. She sells a screenplay, and she's in Hollywood. It's the late 40s. Remember what's happening in Hollywood in the 40s? The blacklist. Yes. So she goes on to, in the early stages of the formation of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, which is the friendly alliance that leaked all the information to the House Un-American Activities Committee all the that we know that name, so well. Yeah, the people that name names to yes. try to save themselves and, and end other people's careers. Yes. They said that their mission was to defend the film industry and the country as a whole against what its founders claim was communist and fascist infiltration. And we know that ever since they took her to head shop, she does not like the commies. She does not. So she joins this group and she starts writing articles. She is like their communications director. Man, she starts like propagating just like these jumped ideas. up and volunteered for this. Big time, enthusiastically, on subcommittees and the like. <laughs> so 1949, the Fountainhead movie is finally released. Even though they used her screenplay literally almost verbatim, they changed basically nothing because she would not let them. She disliked it from beginning to end. She complained about the editing, the acting, all of it. She's just like, cannot be pleased. Hard, yeah, not easy to please. But this is when her political steam really starts to pick up, right? So now she had this book and it's a movie. There's this propagation of, of this core idea that she has been developing for decades. In 1951, uh, she moves to New York City 
at this point, she's very well known and she has like a group of followers, people who are interested in being around her and talking with her all the time. And this group is sort of like jokingly known as the collective. The word Soviet literally means like local collective council. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the calling themselves collective is just a little bit ironic. OK. Oh, it's intentionally ironic. They call themselves a collective because like thinking that they're being cool yes. like we're not a collective but literally they do all the things a collective would do <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um but this group of people includes people like alan greenspan who Ooh. later goes on to run the fed, fed chair, for yeah. like 15 years right that's weird and um did not know that oh he's deep in objectivism really yeah and it's also it also includes nathaniel brandon who was a writer he's canadian and his wife, Barbara. I mention that because eventually Rand and Nathaniel Brandon would begin an affair that at first was secret, but it was later, quote, allowed to continue more openly after the grudging consent of their spouses. Oh, she's married too. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. She is married the whole time the whole time and um but during this time they're all meeting they're writing they're laying this foundation this collective for what we now call objectivism or the objectivist movement do you know anything about objectivism no i mean uh i know it's like a philosophy and it's libertarian Uh, not really so here's how ein herself would describe it objectivism was Quote, the concept of man as heroic being with his own happiness as the moral purpose of his life, with productive achievement as his noblest activity and reason as his only absolute. So your number one only responsibility is just to make yourself happy. Yes. I got a lot of information about objectivism from this author named uh, Denise Cummings from a PBS.org special she did. Um, and she says the core of Rand's philosophy is, which which also like constitutes the overarching theme of her novels, is that unfettered self-interest is good and altruism is destructive. Yeah, I do remember this. Like the there's this specific flavor of it is degenerate in some way to be altruistic to other people. It's not just degenerate. It's immoral. Right. So the this, the idea, the core of this is that like the moral purpose is your own pursuit of happiness. And it's this idea that they call rational egoism, which is that the moral and logical duty duty is to following one's own self-interest. Which let's just be clear, like it, it, this is a lot of like very floral language around the fact that she's saying like if you are good to other people you are a bad person. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like explicitly. Ex- like the thing that makes you a bad person is if you are nice to other people. And the only thing that can make you a good person is if you are only good to yourself. And if being nice to other people is good for yourself, that's fine. But it's that you, that like, it is not your moral responsibility. And it is, this is, this is really where a lot of political uh, agencies latch onto this. It is not anyone institutions responsibility to be good to people and that in fact interference in business specifically is problematic and you know she's a big proponent of laissez-faire capitalism right which is like this economic system that 
private parties are don't have any sort of regulation or intervention in their interactions and like the free hand of the market. Yeah, basically saying you you just buy and sell whatever you want, no government regulation. Absolutely none. There should be no institution that regulates the way people behave. So just to be clear, like there's no consumer safety products, like there's no health inspectors. None. There's no nothing. nothing. If you want a health inspector, you start your own and you charge people for it. You want like, roads? You, build yeah, a road. Exactly. Build mm-hmm. the roads. Yes. Um, and so she talked about it this way, Rand specifically, in one of her more famous like essays, it called Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. So she said, collectivism is the tribal premise of primordial savages who, unable to conceive of individual rights, believed that the tribe is a supreme, omnipotent ruler, that it owns the lives of its members and may sacrifice them whenever it pleases. This author, Denise Cummins, that I mentioned, also said that Rand thought that humans were born as uh, tabula rasa, which is like a blank slate, and pro-social tendencies particularly altruism, are, quote, diseases imposed on us by society, insidious lies that cause us to betray our biological reality. Yeah. So, okay. So let's just be clear about all the layers of bullshit that are are (laughs) here. So, like, one, she's saying she's making assertions, like, from this philosophy that are about how people are wired that are absolutely demonstrably, provably false. Like, we not only know that infants as young as, like, six to eight months respond positively to altruism but like reciprocate it it is like hardwired into our mammalian brains because like it is a totally effective and advantageous strategy because individual people don't survive as well on their own it is like deeply wired into us like over millions of years of evolution so it's not just us it's the reason that you see the same behavior in all these animals but like Mm -hmm. you can see it and she's saying all of that science is bullshit Mm mm-hmm People are duped into being kind to other people by their tribes. And if we just let the babies be the selfish pricks that they wanted to be, (laughs) we would all be better people. Right. Yes. 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 That's exactly what she's saying. She is pro-selfish prick baby. Yes. And she's saying, like, if you didn't... She's saying all babies would grow up to be selfish pricks by default, as opposed to just if their dads didn't hug them. Right. Despite... (laughs) Right there. That's the kicker. That's really (laughs) the the singular um, differentiator. Yeah. Those hugs. Um, But actually, yes, those hugs. Right. There's tons of anthropological research and information that shows that cooperation and collectivism is actually one of the things that allowed humans to evolve over time and like immigrate and have all of these like very specific human characteristics and that there are studies that show when people are put to tests of rational egoism they respond totally counter to what people think they're going to do people will actually like um, suffer a penalty to enforce rules or punish people within the same system who are acting selfishly they like individuals will sacrifice some of their own comfort in order to punish others who are only worried about their own comfort. Yes. Yeah. Yes. People go out of their way to make sure the asshole stops being an asshole. We see this every day with masks at this <laughs> point. It's the mask test, right? If somebody on the street is not wearing a mask and you're like, hey, please wear a mask so you don't kill my grandma, and they lose their shit, people will engage. Yes. This is why the vast majority of people, vast, vast majority of people, do the pro-social behaviors, wear yes. the masks, 
do the things that are good for other people. Absolutely. Yep. Not because of any benefit for themselves. Even if it is annoying and they have to go out of their way, people do the right thing. But she doesn't think so. No. And she's talking about it loudly. Publishes a bunch of stuff. Starts talking about objectivism. Academic philosophers, in general, ignore her and think she's totally wrong. In their defense, it's because... She's she totally, totally wrong. wrong. <laughs> yes. Yes. So what she does is with Nathaniel Brandon, they form the Nathaniel Brandon Institute, which is actually like an organizing body to spread the objectivist movement ideas. So she can't get traction in like current academic circles. So she starts her own. They start having speakers, events, like a church of objectivism. <laughs> yeah, it's a safe space for them to try to get this off the ground themselves when nobody else will listen. Absolutely. All that's happening in the mid to late 50s, 1957, her most well-known book is published, Atlas Shrugged. Do you know anything about the plot of Atlas Shrugged? Yes. Yeah, so this one I know a little bit more about the okay. plot of. Um, basic plot is that... Everybody's like taxing and regulating all of these like um, successful entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so the entrepreneurs are like, fuck this. <laughs> We're going to start our own thing. And you're like, what? And they're like, all move. It's like just a mountaintop like mm -hmm. resort city, it's like bunker resort city, yep. whatever. And they're like, ha ha ha. Now we're all up in this resort city. And now you are uh, all on your own without our genius. And so. You're screwed. Mm -hmm. uh, John Galt is like this big main character. I know that's that. the one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and that's the whole, that's that's the plot, basically. Like, they all just leave everybody with, like, literally the punishment to the world is the is that they are not, <laughs> they, you lose access to these people. Mm -hmm. And then they just expect the world to crumble around them. Yeah. So picture that, but a thousand pages of it. Yeah. 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 It's a long book. It's hefty. It is essentially, and pretty explicitly, propaganda for the objectivist movement. So she used to say, quote, I was educated by the best propagandists of all. She knew exactly what the Soviets were doing. She saw them. She perceived them to be twisting history and art and culture to support their communist agenda. And she was basically like, I can do that. And so she did it. Critics are like, this book sucks. <laughs> it was not well received. Not by critics. It it is it was eventually a bestseller. It's actually one of the greatest selling books of all time. Yeah, like it's like on the list behind the Bible. Behind the Bible, yeah, yeah. Um, but at the time, people hated it. In two thousand eight, after the markets crashed, sales of Atlas Shrugged tripled. Really? Yeah. People were like, "Hey, the market crashed. I need to be an individualist." <laughs> okay. Yeah. Here's this philosophy. None of that mattered to Rand because, again. All of these academics, people she thought she was equal to, wanted to impress. She thought she had all of these ideas. They were like, no, this doesn't work. This is wrong. Just across the board, we're like, this this is not a real philosophy. This is not how yeah. people operate. This is essentially like she is like she is to this movement what like L. Ron Hubbard is to she, Scientologists. She's the L. Ron Hubbard of the libertarians, <laughs> yes, basically. That is yes. what she is. And, and, exactly. the, and the college professors are like, this is not a real thing. It's not a real thing. But she had a ton of followers, right? So to her readers, this philosophy of like supreme self-reliance and this pursuit of self-interest, uh, it really appealed to this moment in time, this idealized core of like the American dream, 
right? So this is the late 50s, early 60s. We're talking about folks moving to the suburbs. We're talking about white picket fences a lot of and white segregated neighborhoods. Yep. So it speaks to this like freedom from tyranny, hard work, individualism. There's a subsection of people here who are like in this golden period where you come back, you can have a blue collar job and mm-hmm. the minimum wage is at the time enough for one person to support a single, like a whole family household, mm-hmm. put your kids through college with like one person. And so they're like, yeah, individualists, I can do this. Just so happens all of the stars align at this like moment in history where, yeah, you get all these advantages and like. You, you can put all this money away. You can, like, make this happen. Right. Uh, and you have a be- lot of... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, because of the particular, like, structural advantages that you've been, like, set up with. Absolutely. Combine that with people who are likely experiencing a lot of trauma from multiple wars that they have been a part of. Oh, yeah. GI Bill s- veterans coming back. Yep. They start to see themselves as, like, my self-interest above all others. When you're in a war, that's true. But when you're in the suburbs of, like, St. Louis, it's not. And this I mean, idea. there's also there's also this this academic uh, work that talks about the fact that you had veterans who were coming back from these wars, and part of the post-war urban planning push and the push of the suburbs, in addition to like giving you these vast, you know, white flight areas, it mm-hmm. was also because. There's real concern when you have a massive population of veterans that, like, if you have social cohesion, like, if you have a lot of them gathering and, like, socializing in large numbers, you have, like, a real recipe for unrest. Yeah. And so, like, there is a distinct push through government planning to atomize social structures in a way that, like, puts a yard and a fence and, like, these big distances between everybody. Like Makes people feel in control. They yes. have their space. Right. But, have... but, like, the yeah. alienation of suburbia is mm-hmm. partly by design in order to counteract, like, feelings of, like shared grievance that can happen when you have a bunch of people who like watched everybody die yeah and then had to come back and try to like live a normal life right and without that social cohesion when you start to think like oh i'm operating only for my self-interest because everyone else is also operating only for their self-interest you start to do some things and that is those things happening in the world sort of was like this positive feedback loop or confirmation bias to ein that objectivism was real and this was like the motivating philosophy and like the moral compass for how people should be behaving so this is basically the super popular book and philosophy as the boomers are like starting to grow up Mm -hmm. in this suburban world Mm -hmm. interesting by the 60s she is no longer writing fiction she's just publishing this like newsletter this objectivist newsletter She has this falling out with Nathaniel Brandon after they break up because she finds out he's been fucking this actress for like four years, who he eventually leaves his wife to marry. But Oh, she's mad at her affair because he's having another affair in addition to the affair with her. She does this totally rational thing, which is write a whole bunch of shit about him in her articles (laughs) about how he was irrational in his personal life. (laughs) But all of this leads... Classic move. Classic leads to the NBI, the National or the Nathaniel Brandon Institute closing. She's alienating herself from a bunch of her followers. People start to speak out about their experience in the NBI and they start to say like there's a lot of intellectual conformity and excessive reverence. Some describe it as a cult or a religion. Nah, interesting. Which is very ironic because atheism 
is a core tenet, a core principle, like actually one of the most fundamental, like there is no God, you serve yourself. Which is so funny because like all of these things it has in common with Soviet communism, <laughs> right? Which is that there's atheism and a supposed rationality and a real love of propaganda. And like Apple didn't fall too far from the tree. But at this point, she is losing friends. She's lost the Institute. She's just speaking and writing on her own. And over the course of the next decade, her work gets less and less and less coverage. Critics don't take her seriously. Academics don't take it, take her seriously. And it's not actually like she doesn't have a ton of commercial success after Atlas shrugged. Um, people don't like flock to objectivism as this theory. But in 2016, there was this book written by a woman uh, named Lisa Duggan, and it's called Mean Girl. Ayn Rand in the Culture of Greed. So she describes Rand's books and philosophy as, quote, optimistic cruelty. (laughs) (laughs) They're mean, but they have a happy ending. (laughs) That is, superior beings are always happy in the end. The novels reverse morality. In them, there is no duty to God or, or fellow man, only to self. Sex is plentiful, free of consequence, and rough. Money and other goods come to those who take them. Her plots legitimize the worst effects of capitalism, creating what Duggan calls, quote, a moral economy of inequality to infuse her softly pornographic romance fiction with the political arrows that would captivate a mass readership. Oh, oh my. Oh, my. And these are the works that have greatly influenced a number of our current politicians. Yeah, I believe that. So, again, this is not a political podcast. This is not about the specific politics of any one party. What I will say is Rand's politics have almost universally been adopted by only one particular party. Yes. Yes, turns out. However, a number of Rand scholars would say that the libertarian and more conservative members of Congress or politicians who cite Rand as their inspiration are performative and misguided, that they don't fully understand what she was advocating for. So there's this Stanford historian. Her name is Jennifer Burns. She wrote this book called Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand in the American Right. And she basically points out all of the ways that the principles of objectivism are co-opted for political purpose and how most of them are actually ignored because they're a political liability. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, there's only so far you can get with running on a platform of, fuck everybody, I'm doing me. <laughs> um, right. Uh, b- <laughs> so, yes. Walk around the club, fuck everybody. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> As uh, philosopher Lil Wayne might say. Might say. Mm-hmm. So one of those points of tension that gets brought up a lot is the fact that atheism is a core part of objectivism. The idea that her work would be on the same platform as God country politics, like in that order, that would displease her greatly. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't doesn't feel like it's a great fit with the American heartland. It it does not. The part that gets really played up or co-opted, right, is this role of the individual and the relationship to government that individuals have. Yeah, like, don't tread on me, keep the government out of my business. Right, right. Which, which, let's just say, like, 
we had bipartisan support for like trillions of dollars of spending and handouts to like businesses and people mm-hmm. in the last like you know four weeks like incredible yeah. incredible amounts of money that both parties are just like one, congrats on your like thousand dollar checks, everyone. Uh, but like you know, trillions of dollars are being handed directly to like giant corporations, Kanye infused into the market, right? Like banks, like J.P. Morgan literally just hit all time record revenue today. Mm-hmm. They announced this quarter all time record revenue. Yeah, um, and people can't pay rent. And people and and we're about to evict potentially up to thirty percent of U.S. adults could be evicted. Yep. In the next six months. Yep. Like, all this to say, we do not have any actual parties of small government at this point, <laughs> but we have we have one that has, like, a lot of small Selective. government talking points. That is exactly right. Historian Jennifer Burns talks about how the Trump campaign likes to tout Rand's libertarian views and, like, power to the people or, like, individuals, but that his that the Trump campaign was actually a direct rejection of Randian economics, where he basically came in and was like... I alone can help you. I am a businessman. The American worker needs the help of someone like me in the government to get better trade deals, to bring back jobs, and only I can do that. It's absolutely the opposite of, like, this laissez-faire, which just yeah. means, like, let it roll. Like, like, there's no, like, you know, there is the absolute opposite of no regulation, let everything yeah. work, is let the government fix this for you. Yeah, let me call these companies and tell them not to move to Mexico. Yes, and he didn't Rand's walk idea. in and say, like, the free market's working, you're just being hustled. Yeah, no. <laughs> he is, like, playing both sides of it, right? But, like, Rand Zealot's glom onto the business aspect of objectivism, this, like, elevation of the capitalist entrepreneur and the individualist business person as the, quote, true leader of society um, and the true change agent. Um, And that's basically like the big appeal of her work that totally ignores the fact that there's only a small part of what she believed to be true about morality and the way people should behave. It fits nicely into the like bootstraps version of the American dream. Briefly, touching on the other points of some of her beliefs that don't necessarily fit into the current narrative of how her work is being used. Uh, She was very much pro-choice. She didn't believe the government should have any say in what anybody did with their bodies. She wouldn't call herself a feminist, which is very strange, but she was very much like a sexual revolutionist. Again, like, do whatever the fuck you want with your body. Um, unfortunately, she was also quite homophobic. Oh. So do whatever you want with your body as long as... You're straight. You're straight. <laughs> yeah. So like that hypocrisy that we're talking about is not reserved for contemporary politicians. She herself lived a life of complexity. Let's, let's say it that way. That's like the most diplomatic way to say it. Recently, both Rand and her and the Ayn Rand Institute have come under scrutiny. Let's start with Rand. She herself, toward the end of her life, received Social Security and Medicare, despite the fact that she considered both welfare, which she at one point called an immoral system that robbed productive members of society. Although, at one point, she did note that it was okay to accept Social Security and Medicare. It was morally defensible if the person receiving them considered the payments 
restitution for being robbed by the government against their will their entire life. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so get, so get this, everybody. Here's what we're going to do. Check it. Okay. We are going to have socialized medicine. We're going to have Medicare for all in this country. Mm-hmm. And for all of the conservatives, just know that it will be totally fine to accept it because mm-hmm. when you get any medical coverage, just know it's restitution for when you were robbed with your taxes. Mm-hmm. Problem solved. Everybody's yeah. happy. And then you can just take a cue from Japan and their new, the the Japanese theme park that tells you to scream inside your heart. Like, get <laughs> your leg set after you break it for free, <laughs> but just scream inside your heart. And if you know inside that you don't want it, but you're going to take it because you are owed it. Yeah, I mean, like, okay, sure. So, so welfare is great evil. But if you did pay into it, you might as well take out of it. Why not? I mean, that is exactly what the Ayn Rand Institute said when they accepted between three hundred fifty thousand and one million dollars from the payment <laughs> or paycheck protection program. No, loan. they didn't. Oh, they sure fucking did. The Ayn Rand, the Ayn Rand Institute, the current like day, like you know, pushing the no government, total free market ideas institute took uh, between 300000 and a million dollars in government subsidies. Yes. And here's what they had to say about it. They said, quote, it would be a terrible injustice for pro-capitalists to step aside and leave those funds to people who are indifferent or actively hostile to capitalism. And so, as an organization, they will, quote, take any relief money offered to them. I feel like the thing that is consistent then in her philosophy mm-hmm. that has clearly, like, been instilled into the organization to carry on her her work is that, like, you should rail against this machine. And then when it comes down to it, just take the money anyway. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Like, there's no principle there. Rail against the machine until... Your choice then is to rail against other people, at which point get real fucking cozy with the machine (laughs) and watch other people starve. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Basically, like if the government has wronged you or you perceive this government system structure to have wronged you, then you can take the money and be fine with it. But if you are an individual who has been systematically oppressed for any number of reasons by capitalism, by politics, for race, for gender, for sexuality. If you need additional community collective support, then it's morally indefensible. But if you're doing it as a like political statement, taking back what is yours, green light, go for it. Fair game. Anyway, she collects Social Security, Medicare, dies because she smoked her whole life, uh, having, you know, not really created anything more prolific than Atlas Shrugged. She continues to influence conversation and politics. In, in seemingly the most, only the most convenient ways. It's really convenient. Yeah, I wish that I had a moral, I wish I had the moral flexibility to justify every decision I made such that it's only for my individual good. I mean, you do just become an objectivist. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. It's really not that hard. Um, but... My takeaway, people are actually a lot more complex. Ayn obviously disagreed um, and as such spent her life campaigning for this like system of belief that glorifies individualism um, at the cost of cruelty against the collective or at the expense of the collective. Um, and then 
she had those beliefs, which were basically made up, sort of like cherry-picked and institutionalized, which is why she's not my hero, because there's been a lot of harm done from what is essentially like science fiction moral philosophy. I feel like they could do themselves a lot of favors if they just rebrand as the Lil Wayne, mm-hmm. as the Lil Wayne moral philosophy. I feel like he would let them trademark that. I think he'd be all into it. All you have to do is every time you walk into a room, use a lighter. Just start a lighter, <laughs> just like right before he comes in on a verse. You walk into a room, the lighter, you say, fuck everybody, mm-hmm. and then you do what you want. Do whatever you want. <laughs> it's a good system. Yeah. And if you would like, if you want this week to go cancel out not shit to a boss's terrible review <laughs> yes, and um, let him know that there are songle Democrats that, <laughs> that do support civil rights, um, you're welcome to do that. That would be nice. iTunes. iTunes is where they left their review. But you know what? Wherever fine podcasts are sold. It is a free country. They can say whatever they want, and they can have as many typos as they want, they can capitalize it, and it is their prerogative to look so smart and cool. (laughs) Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand. Follow us on the Facebook? Nope. Nope. Definitely not the Facebook. Follow us on Twitter, Mm -hmm. Instagram. That's it. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.